You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. With trends like these, it's brought to you by Helix Sleep. The only bad thing that has happened with my Helix mattress is when I was unboxing it with a friend, it unfolded so quickly, it felt like it was attacking me. But since then, it's been amazing. It is the perfect mattress for me, and I didn't even know I needed a perfect mattress. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress that's made for someone else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for the way you sleep. Everyone's unique, and Helix knows that, so they have several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattresses great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Mattresses great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains, and even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. I took the Helix quiz, and I was matched with a Sunset Lux mattress because I wanted something that felt soft, and I sleep on my side. It is soft but still really supportive. It is luxurious. It is better than any hotel mattress I've ever slept on because it's just for me. If you're looking for a mattress, take the quiz and order the mattress you're matched to. The mattress comes right to your door shipped for free. You don't ever have to go to a mattress store again. Helix is awesome, but you don't have to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Helix has been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving sleep. Just go to helixsleep.com slash friends, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix even has financing options and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is now offering $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash friends. That's $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. Go to helixsleep.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox and welcome to With Friends Like These. As you know, a lot of what Americans believe about Thanksgiving is a myth. But there was a real event that historians agree was the first Thanksgiving. And it happened 400 years ago this week. To mark this occasion, we're going to dine out on the truth about the holiday with food historian Linda Civitello. She's the author of the award-winning books, Baking Powder Wars, The Cutthroat Food Fight That Revolutionized Cooking, and Cuisine and Culture, A History of Food and People. Stay tuned to learn more about the colonization of food, what is on your table that you can actually trace back to that first gathering, and how the South waged its own war on Thanksgiving. Linda, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much. This is so wonderful to be here. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you. Uh, this is the time of year uh, where we reckon with the collision that happened. And, and I'm going to say old versus new world, because I think that's the origin of our Thanksgiving is old versus new world. But when I said that earlier, you corrected me to Eastern and Western worlds, which is a better descriptor. But that's what I think of this upcoming holiday as. Yes, it's Thanksgiving, and I'm a fan of giving thanks. Um, but for me and mine, it's also become this chance to kind of reckon with what brought us Thanksgiving, right? Um, and this holiday, the myth of it, at least, this Thanksgiving holiday, the myth of it is really centered around food. You know, like that's what we're giving thanks for. And the question I want to get to first is not so much about Thanksgiving specifically, but about this collision of worlds in the realm of food. Uh, can you talk just a little bit about those significant exchanges sort of in cuisine and food that happened when the uh, Eastern and Western cultures met? I know well, there's a lot. Do you want to start? <laughs> I don't know. Where do you want to start? Do you want to start with New England? Well, we've got the plants and animals that right. were might as well have been from Mars when European people came here, some of these plants and right. animals. Some of them they'd already been introduced to because the, the British came here in the 1600s and we're more than 100 years after the Columbian exchange. So some of those foods had already made it over to Europe and then came back. But the collision was just physically between the groups of people, between the races. Uh, the first Thanksgiving, yes, the mythology sprang up in the 19th century, along with that George Washington and the cherry tree, I cannot tell a lie, when America became sure enough that England was not going to come and take us over again after the War of 1812, when we defeated them for a second time. It was like the second revolution. And then we could reclaim ourselves. We could start to define ourselves. And we did that with this mythology. And the food plays into it. American abundance in food has always played into this. I was just looking at some 19th century, mid-19th century Thanksgiving menus and the food, it's turkey, geese, venison, uh, duck, lobsters, oysters, lamb, pork, veal, beef. I mean, everything was on the table. And you know that much of it was wild caught, including salmon and, and other kinds of fish. But always there, apple pie, pumpkin pie. Uh, but that first Thanksgiving, the mythology is not just about the food. It's about how everybody got along and the native people were so happy to help the Americans, the, well, the British. And this absolutely denies the reality, which number one is that people were able to settle in New England because preceding pandemics, and mm -hmm. pandemics play a huge part in history too, had really destroyed huge numbers of the native populations so that there was land available. The other story we see repeatedly with Europeans coming is they come upon food. Columbus did this. Um, the British did this. They come upon food. They come upon these 
caches of food, these stashes where the native people in their traditions have somehow preserved by drying or some other method of food and stashed it there to get themselves and their people through the winter, through famine, through tough times. And the Europeans come upon this food and just eat it. <laughs> that so, seems like a good metaphor for the entire en- entitled, project. Yeah. <laughs> entitled, you know, well, everybody was starving was difficult. People who grew up in towns and villages in Europe were not used to starvation. And the native peoples, it's in the culture where the children, especially the girls, they learn songs, they learn prayers to deal with famine, with times of famine, because they know that this can happen Mm -hmm. and that there are lean times when the weather is not good. So city people, town people, not so much used to dealing with nature. I love that you've pointed out that the mythology of the Americas has to do with its like literal abundance uh, of eating, like what you can eat. And it it plays into the the mythology of Thanksgiving as well, because at least as I learned it, you know, years and years ago, one of the things that we were supposed to celebrate is the fact that our our foods exchanged, right? Like that we were eating the food that the Indians, like we, we made, we, I'm talking about, I'm taking on <laughs> the, <laughs> the <persona>. colonizer role, <laughs> not happy about it, but it is my legacy, right? Um, the, the, col- uh, 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 the pilgrims made what they could and the, you know, indigenous people made what they could and the table was set with a mix of, of food from both sides. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, and your Aunt Matilda didn't show up either, you know, yeah. with a crocheted doily. Um, we have one firsthand account of the 1621, and by the way, this is the 400th anniversary of mm. that first Thanksgiving. So it's yeah. weighted. Yeah. Uh, the, we have one account, and all we know is that wild fowl were there and five deer. So the wild fowl could easily have been turkeys. There were wild turkeys everywhere. And turkey was something that the Europeans would have been familiar with. It's one of the foods from the Americas that did catch on right away because it's a big bird and not as big as now. You look at recipes from 100 years ago and they say, take a big turkey, eight or nine pounds. We don't have anything that small now. That's that's like a that's like a baby. That's like a baby. Um, but our turkeys now, 20, you know, 15, 18, 23 giant turkeys with enormous breasts raised to have huge amounts of white meat. So that first Thanksgiving native tribes are saying, well, they maybe didn't show up. I don't know if they have their oral traditions that maybe the native people didn't show up to help out or maybe they weren't invited, but maybe because the British were out shooting things in the woods and the native people were afraid they were being attacked, <laughs> you know, so they rushed over. We, we don't know. We don't know. The pictures from that first Thanksgiving are missing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there were Thanksgivings after that and the Thanksgivings were always religious. The, 
settlers in, in New England in the 1620s and the 1630s gave thanks for killing the native people. Mm. It is, I, I mean, ultimately, the Thanksgiving that we officially celebrate is a celebration of colonization, right? I mean, right down to the food is, is what I am, am kind the, of thinking, right? Yeah, it's, we colonized their food. Yeah, the food and, is American, but the techniques are British. And we see this in the first cookbook written in the United States in 1796 in Hartford, Connecticut by Amelia Simmons. And she says, I'm an American orphan, which was a metaphor for the whole country. And, you know, she's got a recipe here to stuff and roast a turkey. And the stuffing has wheat bread, fat, eggs, thyme, margarine, pepper, salt, some add wine, um, fill the bird, hang it up, you know, do this, serve with cranberry sauce. And potatoes, parsley done with potatoes, or boil and mash potatoes, moisten them with butter and herbs, pepper, salt. So there's your dinner. And when she says serve with cranberry sauce, she doesn't give a recipe for cranberry sauce, which means that people in New England had been eating it for so long and so often that you didn't need to tell anybody what it was or how to make it. But everybody just knew. My ignorance is showing cranberries are a Western hemisphere food. Cranberries are native to New England. They're just native to New England. Native. Well, no, I mean, they're in Michigan, they're bogs and Jersey, but they're native to the Northern part of the United States. Yeah, cranberries and blueberries. This is why in New England, a lot of the houses were painted kind of a, a dull purple or a dull cranberry because they would mix the these fruits with sour milk. They had to put something in the wood so that it wouldn't absorb rainwater. They had mm -hmm. to, you know, close the pores. So that's why those houses are that color. That's what they had. I'm really interested in this uh, American foods and um, British techniques. What are some other other things on the menu that are like that? Well, the turkey native to the Americas, potatoes, but potatoes are native to Peru. So that was Spanish territory. So potatoes went from South America to Europe, South America to Spain, then traveled up into Northern Europe, then came back to North America with the Scotch-Irish. Right. Many foods had circuitous roots because England and Spain were enemies. So things from, because you think, oh, well, the potatoes were right there. No, the potatoes had to go transcontinental twice. So uh, mashed potatoes, corn. Corn was the staple grain of the native people. And wheat did not grow well in New England. So corn was became a staple. And the bread was made from corn and rye because mm. rye did grow in New England. And they called corn, they called it Indian. So it was rye and Indian. It was a half rye, half corn loaf. It was very dense because rye doesn't have much gluten. Corn doesn't have any gluten. And I've made a loaf of rye and corn. And you can knead that thing till the cows come home. And it's never getting shiny and elastic <laughs> like wheat. You know, wheat just, just goes, oh, man, gluten, I'm there. It's like, yeah, I'm taking off. No. So, I'm really interested in this idea of colonizing the food. And how that shows up. So we were doing different things to these staples than the Indians did. We were preparing them differently. Were we thinking about them differently? Raising well, them differently? What, what, what did that look like? You take new foods, 
I mean, this yeah. is for immigrants, everybody, I mean, just right. anybody who goes to a new place, you look at something and it's like, I don't know what that is. How does that fit with my cosmology, you know, my culinary right. cosmology with what I already know? Um, so corn was ground, dried corn was ground and turned into flour. That the British knew. They knew flour. So Native American people don't have cornbread. They don't, that's not how they use corn. You know, you can use it in, in a porridge, you can use it as in stew, as a thickener, but cornbread as we know it is American. We added sugar, which originally the technology was developed in India in about the 8th century BCE, then brought over to Europe by the Arab, the, during the Arab agricultural revolution, and then finally you made it over to here and the Caribbean became the big place. So cornbread with sugar, cornbread with baking powder. Baking powder is an American invention. So an American invention. Yes, that's my my I know the, you're into baking powder. The baking, <laughs> the baking powder wars. It absolutely changed cooking in the world because you could all of a sudden leaven things that you could never leaven before, like corn. I worry we might get too far on a tangent, but like, how do you invent baking powder? First, there has to be a need. Right. And in the 19th century in the United States, there, uh, there were two things going on. One was dyspepsia, which was the catch-all for all of those things you see in the Pepto-Bismol commercial, just any kind of upset stomach thing. And it was thought to come from the bread. Bread has tremendous, wheat bread has tremendous religious significance and resonance in Western civilization. So in New England, where wheat did not grow well, you kept what wheat you had for the sacrament. You kept it for Sunday or maybe for company, and you mixed it a little with corn, but you ate that corn and rye loaf the rest of the time so you could have that for, for the religion. So you need... The, one of the other things that happened is that America's standard of living has always been higher than Europe's. Europe had a tradition, going back to the Middle Ages, of guilds of men who were bakers. And very often that was generational and familial. Or, but it came from the medieval lord of the manor has a mill. Lord of the manor has an oven. You don't have a mill. You don't have an oven. You have to go and bake. You have to pay to do that. Or then when there's commercial baking uh, when, with urbanization, you go to the corner and you buy your bread. We get to America. Everything is spread out. We don't have male guilds. We don't have professional bakers. Women have to do the baking in the home. And we're talking about people who in the early settlements are eating a pound of bread per person per day. It's not, you know, would you like some bread with that? It's like, would you <laughs> like something with that bread? I'm just thinking, of course, on modern, uh, uh, the way people think about bread today, like, wow, like they must have had severe carb face, you know, like <laughs> no, a pound well, it, of bread. It's, <laughs> That's a lot of bread. It, it is. And baking it is a tremendous undertaking. Baking is a strenuous physical activity in France. The male bakers didn't knead with their hands. The, the bread dough was in a big, long trough. And the male bakers 
kneaded it with their feet. They jumped up and down on it. The wow. Italians would stomp on, on wine. And also, well, go ahead. Well, I was going to say the, the women baking this bread must have had real guns, you know, like <laughs> getting well, a workout, like you said, with the corn and rye. A lot of times the teenage girls in the household, this was the responsibility of, of the girls was because they had to learn how to do it for when they became wives, but also, you know, they were young and they were strong and you'd see girls from the neighborhood. If your girls were grown and had their own families or something, but the local girls, it became kind of communal. You know, it's like Monday I'm baking bread and Susanna's coming over from next door. And then Tuesday she can go and help somebody else. You know. and, and I can't quite believe that this, this sentence is, is, uh, going to come out of my mouth, but to get back to the baking powder, (laughs) it's just such a specific thing to invent. That's, that's why I'm interested. It's just, it's, it's, you know, like a lot of foods, like a lot of things in our lives, you don't think of it as an invention, right? You think of it as just like, oh, it's there. It's just a thing that's there, but that's what I thought. And I, I thought I was writing a history of breakfast and I thought, (laughs) (laughs) This is a massive topic. Breakfast is a massive topic. Let me start with something small like baking powder because it's in everything. It's in the pancakes, it's in the muffins, it's in the waffles, it's in the quick bread. It's in absolutely everything. And then I found thousands and thousands of pages in court cases going up to the United States Supreme Court and just saga going on for for generations and centuries. Get really far away from Thanksgiving, but baking powder is Thanksgiving too, right? Like, (laughs) well, Thanksgiving mm, sort of, no, okay. Not so much. It's the one time it's in the cornbread. It's in the cornbread. All right. Some people put baking powder in pie crust, but it's a chemical leavener. And it's one of the first chemicals that was, or the first chemical that was deliberately added to food. That sounds so fascinating, but I feel like we should circle back to Thanksgiving. Okay. (laughs) With Friends Like These is brought to you by ZocDoc. Do you get excited by a five-star rating on anything, a driver, a restaurant, an app? Let's be honest. Ratings matter a lot. And when it comes to finding healthcare, ratings matter even more. ZocDoc is an app where you compare doctors by their ratings and read reviews from real patients. So you can find and book highly rated local doctors. When you need a doctor, you need a doctor now, not in a few days, not in a few weeks, and definitely not in a few months. You need to see an MD ASAP, and ZocDoc has a solution. Just download the free ZocDoc app, the easiest way to find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment. With ZocDoc, you can search for local doctors who will take your insurance, read verified patient reviews, and book an appointment in person or via video. Never wait on hold with a receptionist again. Whether you need a primary care physician, dentist, dermatologist, psychiatrist, eye doctor, or other specialist, ZocDoc has you covered. Go to ZocDoc.com slash friends and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc. And now is the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com slash friends and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top-rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Script. Maybe back in the day, you used to look forward to a particular movie coming out on a particular day. Now, 
you can watch anything, anytime. You don't collect DVDs, you collect streaming services. Now, imagine a streaming service for books. Instead of standing in front of your bookshelf and waiting for a title to jump out at you, sign up for Scribd. You get instant access to millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more, all at one low monthly price. One big difference from Scribd and video streaming services is streaming services don't usually have, say, the original version of Nosferatu or Edison's first moving picture. Scribd has an amazing cache of historical documents. Their scanned list of plantation inventories, including the names of the enslaved people who worked there. Or you can read the grand jury indictment of the officers charged with the Laquan McDonald. Or you can look at the DOJ filings related to the January 6th insurrection. All super fascinating stuff. With Scribd, the world's most fascinating library is at your fingertips, all for just $9.99 a month. Explore your interests in any format ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and like I said, documents, court documents, academic books, and more. You enjoy instant access to Scribd's entire library for less than the cost of a single book. It couldn't be simpler. No complicated credits or additional purchases. Automated suggestions and hand-created picks make choosing your next book easier than ever. Right now, Scribd is offering our listeners a free 60-day trial. Go to try.scribd.com slash friends for your free trial. That's try.scribd.com slash friends to get 60 days of Scribd for free. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Girlfriend Collective. As far as fashion goes, it doesn't take very long till everything old becomes new again. Girlfriend Collective takes that literally. They turn plastic bottles and other waste that would end up in a landfill into something new to wear. Isn't it great to practice conservation in a way that doesn't involve just not washing your yoga pants that often? Girlfriend Collective makes comfy clothes that make you feel good on the inside, too. Girlfriend Collective is sustainable, ethically made activewear for everyone. They make cute and comfortable bras, leggings, shorts, tanks, tees, and more, and their sizing is inclusive, ranging from extra, extra small to 6XL. Whether you're working out, running errands, or doing nothing at all, Girlfriend Collective has functional fabrics, colors, and styles for any activity. Their best-selling leggings are squat-proof, come with pockets, and have different levels of support, whether you need compression or just softness. Join the collective today and feel good about what you buy and comfortable in what you wear. For listeners to our show, Girlfriend Collective is offering $25 off your purchase of $100 or more when you go to girlfriend.com slash friends. That's $25 off $100 or more when you go to girlfriend.com slash friends. That's girlfriend.com slash friends. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I I wanted to talk a little about the things we can thank Native people right. for. Yeah, for the actual, example. not mythology. No, the real, the real yeah. contributions that Native Americans have made right. to 
you know, American culture and, and cultures throughout the world, even um, things that, like you said, we take for granted. And the first, being a New England girl myself, I would like to thank Native Americans for developing the technology to create maple syrup. Hmm. It's not instinctive when you look at a tree to go, oh, I think I'll just stick something in the tree and see what comes out. Or how much can I take without killing the tree? Or what time of year should I do this? This is extremely complicated and sophisticated technology. And okay, you have to take that sap. You have to know what time of year. You have to know how much. You have to know where in the tree so that you don't damage the tree. And then you have to boil it down. You have to reduce it. And the Native Americans did this without having metal pots. Hmm. Think about this. How do you boil something or get it to boiling and reduce it without a metal pot, without something you can put over the fire? Hmm. And the way you do that is you cook in animal skins and you heat stones up in the fire. You have to have a constant. And put it in the skin. You put it in and that will generate heat and make the liquid mm. boil and reduce. But it is a constant, difficult, you know, time-consuming, extremely labor-intensive. And then they would store the maple syrup in giant moose vats of, of moose that the women had prepared and sewed up. And, you know, so that you don't, obviously you don't want anything to leak. And when the, the Europeans came, the early Europeans acknowledge the role that the Native Americans had played. And then later Europeans around the 18th century kept you know, saying, well, we showed that they didn't know anything because again, what you have here, the collision is between mm -hmm. people who think they're civilized and people that they think are savage or mm -hmm. heathen, they, they aren't Christians. So that's going to really determine what they think of these people. So later people in the 18th century would come in and say, no, we taught the native people how to make maple syrup. We did that. And you look at it, and one of the ways that food historians track the origins of things is through linguistics, is etymology. So you look at that and you go, okay, so you're from Europe and you created the technology for maple syrup. So how come in the native language, they've got like, you know, 10 words for maple syrup and you have one? Mm -hmm. You know, um, and then, you know, we see things and I, I love this, that some people reported, they said that the maple sugar, which is further processing this down to crystal, um, was used for gifts. They poured it into the native people, poured it into little molds. And one European said they are shaped. These little molds are shaped like bear paws, flowers, stars, small animals and other figures, he said, just like our gingerbread bakers at fairs. And mm. you look at this and you know, here are these native people creating beauty with food, mm -hmm. uh, planning on giving gifts, maybe treats for their children or you know, gifts in their community, just mm -hmm. like we do. But it was so, so difficult for the Europeans to acknowledge this and see the humanity, just the common humanity in this. It's I'm glad you brought up uh, maple syrup and maple sugar because I, I think a lot of us who, who know anything about, you know, uh, the genocide that was committed um, by uh, Eastern Hemisphere uh, colonists, 
we think of cotton as being uh, the crop that did a lot of damage, but sugar is another reason oh, oh. that <laughs> that things got as ugly as it did, right? The, and the, I guess the reason, but I'm interested in the maple uh, maple syrup thing because there was sugar, you know, in this hemisphere, right? It just uh, wasn't sugar, the same. The sugar came from the Caribbean. It came from the sugar. Well, I meant like there's maple. So there's sweetness. There's something that's sugar. There's something that can be thought of as sugar, but no, it wasn't. It, it wasn't a commodity in the same way that actual sugar, granulated sugar, became. No. No, yeah. because by then granulated white sugar from, and again, it's white, which is important. White sugar from the, Car <laughs> from the Caribbean was familiar to everyone in Europe and they continued right. that trade and also the molasses trade. Later, they had molasses as part of that triangle trade from mm -hmm. you know, molasses up from the Caribbean to New England turned into rum, rum taken to Africa for slaves, slaves taken to the Caribbean. Again, the, we think, and I think most Americans think that the majority of the slaves that came out of Africa came to the American South. Mm -hmm. Small percentage came to the American South. Majority went to the Caribbean. Where then they took the healthiest, strongest young people, young men mostly, ages like 16 to 20, prime of physical prime of life as enslaved people to work on the sugar plantations, their life expectancy there was four years mm. because it was cheaper to throw them away, to let these people die and buy new people than it was to feed them decently or treat them like humans instead of working them to death. And what they were fed was cod that came from Massachusetts, from mm -hmm. New England, that sacred cod hanging in the state house in Massachusetts. Yes, it made fortunes. It created the codfish aristocracy. And the grade A, the best dried cod, went to European countries with a tradition of that. Italy, bacala, Spain, bacala, Portugal, bacala, what all of those words are connected. And that's something Americans, that Italians brought back to New England with them because that's bacala, dried codfish is one of the things you have at the Feast of the Seven Fishes on Christmas Eve. And I remember saying to my mother, Ma, what are we doing with this dried codfish? That you're like, it's a week. You've got to soak it and drain it and drain it and soak it and water and milk and soak it. I said, there's fresh cod everywhere here. What are we <laughs> doing with this? But that's how ferocious traditions are. And Immigrants bring this also to America with Thanksgiving because you don't ever just show up and go, okay, oh, that's your festive meal. I'm in. I'm in for the whole thing. It's like, no, we make this for our holidays. So I'm going to add this. I'll add this soup. I'll add this bread, this pie. I'll add this other meat. I'll add something else. So that, for example, Italian Americans Thanksgiving started with a full-on festive Italian meal, which was soup, Italian bread, lasagna, sometimes sausage, meatballs. I mean, a huge meal. Then the American meal with all in the pies and desserts. And then the Italian ending, which was roasted chestnuts. Oh, sometimes you might have a 
I, I was artichoke. <laughs> I'm still digesting Thanksgiving from 1978. I was going to say I was I dated um, a, a Italian guy from Jersey. And oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> it's okay. Um, but that was my first experience with the Italian Christmas, and I remember it never. It, I had I, my mind was blown that basically you eat all day. And it is like a first you have an Italian dinner with all of the stuff that you would have like an Italian restaurant. And then you have your American dinner. And it's, I also went to my first Italian East coast wedding with that person. Boy, we could have another show. Um, cookies. cookies. Oh, we don't care for cake. Oh my God. So many cookies. Of cookies. And also there was this big buffet, like during the risk, like before the wedding, there was a, a buffet, not even buffet. That's not fair to call it a buffet. There was like a, a open feeding with like there was a sushi station and a, a pasta station and like and yeah, then, because oh. you you get there a good 20, 30 minutes before the wedding and somebody could die from starvation That's right. in the meantime. And, and then you have the wedding and then you have another meal and then you have another meal after that too. It's amazing. So so I, I do love that what the Italian approach is, is just to add. We don't replace. We just add. Well, the, right? it's, this is our food. We mm -hmm. eat this. We will eat your food and acknowledge that we are here. But this is our food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All well, that's immigrant groups do this. They just, people do this. To, some people just throw out the turkey and bring in their own. You know, it's just with people from the Caribbean and people from you know, from every which where in the African-American community, macaroni and cheese is the must have at Thanksgiving. I, I suppose we can leave behind um, the not first, but at least the mythology of, of the first Thanksgiving, if you like. I, I am curious, though, just to get back to the, the, the cultural collision. Um, so there was this colonization of food which is the the taking of these indigenous plants and animals and preparing them how it was familiar to us. I'm wondering if there was anything that, you know, that the colonists adopted from indigenous culture pretty wholesale. Like, was there anything that was like, oh, well, maybe maple sugar uh, candy, but was there anything that people were like, oh, that looks delicious and we're just going to cook it the way that you cook it and it seems awesome? No. <laughs> <laughs> that no, seems because, really racist, actually. <laughs> yeah, the the minute that that wheat they could grow wheat in the north, the the corn recipes fall off. Popcorn, cranberries, uh, but cranberries in a fixed with sugar and oranges and things from that Europeans were used to. One of the places where we took chocolate, the chocolate technology, that's from the you know, the Mayans, the Aztecs. So we can thank them mm -hmm. for that, for developing the cacao pods and, and chocolate. Um, the barbecue is a technique, a pit barbecue hmm. with open flame, uh, we think originated in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're freeze drying. The Peruvians did that in the Altiplano, the Inca developed mm -hmm. that technology where during the day it was hot and dry and at night it got cold. So jerky, jerky, charquet is a okay. Quechua word from Quechua. Um, and 
I think my favorite, though, is flash freezing. This started uh, an entire industry in the United States when a guy named Clarence Birdseye, and yeah, that's his real name, uh, was a naturalist employed by the United States government. And he was up in Canada and he was in different places looking at flora and fauna. And he realized that fish that were frozen in the winter tasted better than fish that were frozen in the spring or the fall or meats or anything they had there tasted better. And then he looked at how the native people were doing this and they were using the wind and the cold to flash freeze their food. And bird's eye thought this was great. And he came back to the United States and he spent about seven bucks and bought a fan and a little metal plate and some you know, some things to try to replicate this. This was in the 1920s. And he did develop a cold technology and he patented uh, this technology. He has several patents. But the problem was, even if he could figure out how to replicate this, who was going to buy it? Where would they store it? You didn't have freezers in your home. You had an ice box. Electricity was just coming into kitchens in the 1920s. And then still you had that little freezer compartment at the top. If you had an electric refrigerator and, you know, it could fit like an ice cube tray. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you'd have to defrost it and it was misery. So that didn't catch on. General Foods thought enough of this, though, that they bought him out. And after World War II, we really got into what food historians call the cold chain, which is an uninterrupted supply of cold from point of origin to point of consumption, which means your processing facility has to be able to be extremely cold. You have to have storage and warehouses that are extremely cold, transportation, trucks, railroad cars. We first developed that in the 1880s for meat, for beef, because it was cheaper to ship beef dressed, which is killed in, you know, in sides or big pieces than on the hoof, because you have to feed on the hoof, you have to water on the hoof, you have to muck out the cars, it's a mess, just refrigerate. But cold chain, and you needed freezers. And in the 1950s, you had lots of people in America, millions of people buying those giant, giant chest freezers. Yep. Yep. And that's I have one of those. It's great. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because I mean, it really took off. And one of the first things you get to put in that freezer is TV dinner, which is turkey. It's the Thanksgiving dinner. Mm -hmm. Got a little compartments, turkey, gravy, mashed potatoes, maybe sweet potatoes or a little cranberry sauce or something or turkey pot pie. Was that really one of the first um, frozen dinners? Was it basically Absolutely. replication of Thanksgiving? That was the first dinner was the frozen turkey dinner. And then they, when they called it TV dinner, it took off like crazy. And then yeah. I'm going to bring things around full circle and point out that Tucker Carlson's family money comes from the Swanson family. So, wow, white supremacy just really embedded in that vicious circle. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, white supremacy is connected to Thanksgiving in the South. They did not want to celebrate Thanksgiving after the Civil War because when it became a national holiday. Thanksgiving became a national holiday in 1863 when Lincoln declared it. And in 1864, everybody in the North decided that they were going to make a beautiful Thanksgiving for the troops. And they spent millions of dollars. Women cooked, they baked, they made gingerbread, they made cookies, they made pies. 
They made pickles and sauerkraut and, and whole turkeys and shipping companies in the North shipped it for free. And there was a huge, they wrote notes and everybody was, the soldiers' morale was tremendously helped by this. The South decided they were going to outdo the North. They said, the North doesn't know anything about hospitality. We're the South. We're going to have the biggest feast ever on New Year's Day. The tables are going to be 20 miles long, 20, sorry. The tables are going to be 20 feet long and the North and the South never pull it off. The South was never able to pull that off and we got a lot of desertions. So Thanksgiving made a big difference there. Southerners would not celebrate it because they viewed Thanksgiving as a Northern holiday. They knew that preachers had been preaching abolition from the pulpit. The South started celebrating Thanksgiving when Reconstruction ended, the army got pulled out of the South and they could revert back to white supremacy. And in Alabama, for a Thanksgiving proclamation in 1875, the governor, and I'm quoting, he issued the proclamation, quote, to honor the replacement of a Reconstruction Constitution by a new document that restricted Black participation in state government. We got the same thing in Georgia when white supremacists returned to power in the state and there were no longer any black politicians or lawmakers. Um, and that's when the South started celebrating Thanksgiving again. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Allbirds. As we settle into the fall season, life is picking up again. And we know these days, staying comfortable is at the top of everyone's list. When you lace up a pair of Allbirds wool runners, you'll see that Allbirds has redefined what it means to be comfortable all day long. Made from soft, sustainable merino wool, the wool runners don't just feel good, they look good too. I personally love that they dry really quick and that they're not hot. Wool is just cozy. It doesn't make you sweat. My runners are in the limited edition Olympus color, which is a very rich red autumnal classic. But the best thing about them, machine washable. That is why they're my dog park shoes. ZQ certified merino wool is the most sustainable wool you can get. So you'll feel comfortable wearing your wool runners and you'll feel good about your decision to wear them too. Machine washable, easy to wear, easy to clean. Allbirds is a carbon neutral company thanks to sustainable practices like using natural materials and purchasing carbon offsets. Start the season off right with a pair of wool runners from Allbirds. Find your own pair of wool runners today at allbirds.com. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com. With Friends Like These is brought to you by the How to Buy a Home podcast. Buying a house is confusing, intimidating, risky. There are a thousand steps and a thousand people involved. It's one of the biggest decisions you'll make in your life. And maybe like me, you'll wind up doing a lot of it on your own. Terrifying. And that's why you should check out the How to Buy a Home podcast. The How to Buy a Home podcast is a free playbook of the do's and don'ts to buying your first home. No matter if you're clueless on how to start or deep in the mess of looking for clarity, host David Sedoni is an industry leader with years of experience who actually cares about first-time home buyers and wants to help them beat a system that is rigged against them. He answers questions like, do you really need to put 20% down? By the way, the answer is no. Most people only put down 3.5% and David will tell you how. How much over asking should you offer? Are we in a bubble or is that about to burst? 
how and when do I start? I'm telling you, if you're thinking about buying a home next month, next year, or in five years, listen to the How to Buy a Home podcast today. This is your best bet to avoid being one of those horror stories and to get an insider playbook with clear, no BS, real information. Find How to Buy a Home wherever you get your podcasts. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It really is a holiday that is just through and through uh, embedded with white supremacy. It is a celebration in many ways, at least historically. And I keep on doing that caveat. Um, at least historically, it's a celebration of white supremacy because I confess I have a sentimental you know, attachment to the holiday. I, I, I imagine a lot of Americans do. Uh, do you, knowing everything you know about Thanksgiving, how do you feel about Thanksgiving? Well, as a historian, I, you know, you'd just never be able to wake up in the morning if all you right. knowing what you know about the atrocities that have happened and continue to happen, except that in there is still this acknowledgement that the Native people did help us survive, that there is good in the world and there is good food. And what we can do is try to remedy or acknowledge what happened. And I think what you're doing on your show is demythologizing mm-hmm. this. And this is a time when America is self-scrutinizing and some people can't handle it. They, they want the white supremacy fairy tale and they don't want to hear the truth, which is the genocide, um, the, you know, let's give the native people these blankets from people who've had smallpox. Um, yeah. You know, they don't want to hear that. And the letters about that smallpox are at Amherst College because it was Lord Jeffrey Amherst. And he doesn't acknowledge that he did it, but he writes to people about how it should be done and could be done. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, as a maybe it's a human thing, I'm not sure if it's an American thing or a white American thing. I, I think it's really present with white Americans, though, is a desire to have um, our stories be pretty simple, you know, that the Thanksgiving is either good or bad, right? Like uh, that it's either something we celebrate or something that we we shun. And I think what's really interesting about trying to demythologize this holiday is to somehow be able to hold in your head both the awful tragedy of it and some of the things you're talking about. It's not like one makes up for the other, by the way. That's not what I'm saying at all. But that there can be two ways to look at something and both can be true. Well, when America works, there's nothing better. There is nothing better. (laughs) No, there is nothing better than us at our best. Mm -hmm. And I think the perfect example of this is World War II. When we went into countries that we had flattened, we went into Germany, we went into Japan, and the way victors had 
always behaved before that was to grind the people who had lost further down. And we went in and helped them recover. The Japanese were expecting us to go in and kill them all. People committed suicide in Japan. I mean, they had some reason to believe that, by the way. They said, because that was how they had been treating. Well, and also we did drop nuclear bombs on cities that were most of the people. This was before when they didn't know what was going on. But yes, we, so an American abundance is important. And America has helped the world through this abundance. And we can continue but we also need to acknowledge that there is disparity, you know, and not just feel good about ourselves once a year or twice a year at Thanksgiving and Christmas because we donate some cans of food to a food pantry. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's more than that and it needs more long haul. And the food injustices and food apartheid need to be addressed, you know, um, and Thanksgiving was one of the things that FDR talked about. And there's that famous Norman Rockwell magazine cover of freedom from want Mm -hmm. as one of America's four freedoms, freedom from want. We need to, and I think the country's in a process of redistribution now, or at least awareness where a lot of workers said, you know, I, I can't do this anymore at this rate or at this pay scale or with these parameters we need to rethink this um yeah so i think that's really important to bring in the idea that um there is a thread in our uh thinking of thanksgiving that i that sometimes shows up as uh, oh this is the time of year we give some cans to the food pantry but is actually more radical than that it is this idea that Thanksgiving can be a time to think of how everyone deserves abundance, that there is no such thing as having to earn abundance so much as <laughs> it can be accessible. It should be accessible to everyone. That's a pretty radical thought, you know, it yes. is. Yes. Yes. Well, and we'll see this Thanksgiving, what happens with the supply lines. Food mm-hmm. is crucial to governments because it's been connected with revolutions. When there isn't food, hungry people are angry people. Hungry, angry people will kill you before they will die, especially if their children are starving. Um, but that was one of the things that was astounding. I mean, through all of this is that the supply lines have held were in America. Yeah, basically. I mean, I think everyone's had trouble with a little bit of everything, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's been incredibly fortunate. Well, we have managed to follow the Thanksgiving thread a lot of different places. Uh, Is there anything you want to talk about before we wrap up? I do. Thank you. (laughs) This first American cookbook, which is published in Connecticut, has a lot of food first, including the stuffing and the turkey and served with cranberry. Some of that came from British cookbooks. British were familiar with stuffing birds and things. But it also has the first recipes for pumpkin pie, as we know it. There are recipes for squash pies and things, but pumpkin pie, sweetened pumpkin pie with eggs in it, what we're used to as pumpkin pie, 
These are the first two recipes. And it's called American Cookery by Amelia Simmons, published in Hartford, Connecticut in 1796, the same year the, the State House was built in Hartford. And this cookbook also has the first recipes for cookies. It is the first time the word cookies appears in print. And these are American. In other countries in England, they have biscuits or, mm -hmm. you know, which means twice cooked or biscotti, which means twice cooked. But we have cookies and these are American. So it's um, in many corn recipes and they didn't have cornbread, but we had Indian slapjacks you know, that were cooked on a griddle or that Ryan engine bread, Indian pudding, hasty pudding. So the use of the corn and then many recipes for apple pie, but yeah, three recipes for pumpkin and that cranberry sauce, which like I said, we already knew was in existence because everybody knew how to make it. So Connecticut has a lot of food first. Do you have a, maybe you can end on a, a literally a sweet note. Do you have a favorite recipe for pumpkin pie? Yeah, it's my pumpkin amaretto cheesecake. <laughs> ginger snap crust. Uh, where could people find that if they wanted to make it? <laughs> I, I oh, it's yours. The recipe. It's, yes, yours. it's, my, it's my recipe. <laughs> there are recipes out there. But, I'm, you know, you don't need to make a graham cracker crust. Any kind of cookie can make a crust. A little crush the cookies up in a food processor, a little bit of butter, a little bit of sugar, and then, you know, pumpkins, amaretto, cheesecake. There you go. I just, I love Thanksgiving food. I am just a huge fan of basically the whole menu. Um, I often make a pumpkin chocolate cheesecake. Uh, that's a swirl in it uh, that I like marbled, a lot. Marbled, marbled, yeah, marbled nice. uh, pumpkin I could chocolate just cheesecake. Eat, I could just eat stuffing and gravy. I also like stuffing. Honestly, it really is hard to choose. Um, and I, I don't know why it's such like a. It, it's my favorite holiday, and my I, I used to say it was just the food, but I think I'm just going to go back to that idea that I think it's actually one of our more complicated holidays. I mean, every, I mean, everything's problematic, right? But to me, Thanksgiving is the best and the worst of us in one, one thought, right? Like it's this horrible, bloody history and it's gratitude, which is the most beautiful sentiment that there is. So I don't know. There's always something to, to think you know, about and always something to, to, to mull. We're Americans. We can do better. Yeah. You know, we have the means. Once we get the will, we can do better. Linda, thank you for coming on. This has been fascinating. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I hope everybody manages to enjoy Thanksgiving. I hope yeah. that's my, my goal. <laughs> I think everyone will give it their best shot. Thanks again. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're grateful to Linda Civitello for sitting down with us. Be sure to pick up her books, Baking Powder Wars, The Cutthroat Food Fight That Revolutionized Cooking, and Cuisine and Culture, A History of Food and People. This show is a product of Crooked Media. Leslie Martin is our producer. Patrick Antonetti is our audio editor. This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands of, among others, the Coahuiltecan, Comanche, Jumano, Lipan Apache and Tonkawa peoples. Take care of yourselves.
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.